0: This is Science Plus Story, I'm Bob Lawlish. On today's show, Hugh Possingham, the chief scientist of Australia's Queensland state, and one of the world's leading conservation scientists, talks with me about why so few people care about conservation. Spoiler alert, maybe it's the conservationists.
1: I do love hanging out with conservationists, but sometimes they can be miserable and dull. (laughs) They can really be miserable and dull. and, you know, very much over-anxious about failure and, and anxious about whether they're getting anywhere. So, so it does have to be fun, um, uh, and, and maybe that is part of our communication problem. Uh, you know, it shouldn't just be, oh, I need to be worthy and count some birds and plant some trees and fix up the water quality. And, and I'd have to say most of these conservation g- groups that I'm a part of don't spend enough time Uh, enjoying themselves. And maybe that is part of the secret for the new conservation.
0: He was a very funny guy. Coming up, he talks with me about his most spectacular science communications failures, why most scientists don't care about communicating well, and why he prefers taking climate change skeptics on bird walks to arguing with them. I read an interview with you, and I think I'm quoting this correctly, where you talked about the three parts of ecology. One is killing things you don't like. Two is killing things you like to kill. And the third is saving things you like from being killed, which corresponds mm. to conservation. Why has it proven so hard to talk with people about the last one, about saving things you like from being killed?
1: Yeah, I suppose the other two make money. So killing things we want to kill, like fish and deer, um, you know, we eat them. And so the fishing industry is big. And the other one, killing things we don't like, pests, uh, again, it's not, we're not making money, but we're saving money. So the agricultural pest industry is huge. So they have businesses. The business model for conservation is, I think, as you know, just fraught. Technically, in some senses, it is a public good and has all those public good problems that economists talk about and nobody really owns it. If any industry were to own it, it would be the tourism industry, Mm. in in Australia particularly, which is our fourth biggest expert earning income industry. But they don't pay for it at all, hardly. They pay a tiny little bit from park entry fees or the Great Barrier Reef charges people $20 for every person who dives on the reef. So... All those other industries have money; they're billion-dollar industries or multi-billion-dollar, trillion-dollar industries. The tourism industry is, but it's so dispersed and fragmented. And who who really is it? It actually, even though it is a big global industry, doesn't. We haven't worked out a mechanism for it to pay for the asset that it uses. And of course, the other industry is sort of the mental, uh, physical health and well-being of human beings who love nature, which is ten to twenty percent of the world at least. And we haven't worked out a way of getting them. To
0: So the way we talk about conservation, it's been this ongoing search, as long as I've been aware of conservation, for relevance to what people care about. And Mm. conservation has tried wilderness. And Mm. as you've talked about, biodiversity in many different forms, including ecotourism and ecosystem services, which Mm. is the way it provides us with drinking water and other things that we care Mm. about. And none of those has really caught the imagination of a wide enough swath Mm of the public to take conservation into the mainstream do you think it's the concepts that conservation is using or is it the way that conservation is talked about them or both and what's next what's the next thing to try
1: yeah and i think your assessment is spot on and, and very accurate we've gone from existential uh, love it uh, to sort of utilitarian, the ecosystem services stuff is, is, I find, slightly annoyingly utilitarian. So we've sort of tried everything. You know, we've tried Paul Ehrlich saying this is the last rivet on the aeroplane and we pop it out and that species goes, could it be the rivet that's holding the wing on? So we've, we've tried fear, we've tried <laughs> utilitarian mechanisms, we've tried the love of nature. I mean, maybe we shouldn't expect any more than 10 or 20% of people to really care. And again, talking about those other industries, uh, those industries that require harvesting of resources like fisheries, or I think we say that 5 to 10% of the world live on those things, maybe 15% in more broadly from the harvesting industry. But that's not a problem. That industry still works. Fisheries is, is a massive global industry and all the associated wildlife harvesting is a massive global industry for better or for worse. So... We seem to think that we have to get 100% of people caring about nature to make progress. And, you know, we have made incredible progress on the Great Barrier Reef. If you just ask Australians how many people believe the entire Great Barrier Reef, which is the size of Italy, should be fully protected from any form of resource extractions, 95% of Australians say, yes, fully protected. And I'm sure if you went global, that would be 98%. Um, uh, closer to the, the ports of Queensland and the towns of Queensland, it might be more like 40 or 50%. So, in that sense, we have won the hearts and souls of almost everybody. We just don't seem to be able to implement the wishes of the people. It's one place where democracy continuously fails because almost all people seem to want more conservation. But for various reasons, it doesn't happen. Let's talk about a
0: failure. Let's, tell me a story about a science communication effort gone wrong a failure that you were in the Mm. middle of Mm. what happened and what would you have done differently looking back
1: on it yeah my most spectacular failure was um it was actually it was sort of a conservation issue but it's also a wildlife management issue and it was highly controversial and that that issue was around um culling koalas on kangaroo island so that's a bit of a a tongue twister Mm. so And it was a conservation issue because koalas had been introduced to this very big island, 450,000 hectares. They were destroying the native vegetation. Uh, The only sensible process to remove them was culling them. But, of course, you can't get people to cull koalas. It's just impossible. I actually convinced over a year and a half after 320 interviews including one day nine tv interviews most of the people for south australia 80 percent of people who lived in that state that the only sensible approach to dealing with this overpopulation of this cute and cuddly animal was to cull them so i mean was it a failure i could never convince the world i could never convince the politicians so it seems to me that some issues are so contentious around wildlife that they will arguably almost never be resolved, whether it's elephants or sharks or crocodiles or koala management, because so many people have what you'd have to say just deeply held fundamental views that they're intransigent. So maybe that was an unwinnable communication issue. Um, It was fun and distressing at the same time. But I suppose the other standard issue in conservation is people trying to protect something from destruction. You know, and there have been some successes there and some failures there. I suppose the one where I've had first success and then failure was in Queensland, where we did get the Premier to bring in land clearing legislation. So Queensland was clearing 400 to 500,000 hectares a year of native be- of forest. That's actually pretty horrific. That puts us close to Brazil. As I say, we're the 16th biggest country in the world if we're a country. The carbon consequences of that were terrible. The wildlife consequences were terrible. Uh, a lot of that was causing runoff into the Great Barrier Reef. It made really no sense at all. We did write a declaration. We had a huge campaign. Science led that campaign and we wrote something called the Brigalow Declaration and the Premier of the day, Peter Beattie, who was a very progressive Premier, said, waived the letter that I had written with Barry Trail in public in front of all the television stations and said, we're going to end this, we will clear maybe another million hectares over the next few years and then it will stop. So to me, that was the greatest conservation victory I've ever been involved in because arguably it basically bought us about 2 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalents. I mean, it was massive. I can fly around the planet for the rest of my life and I'm still ahead and the wildlife it saved was literally um, hundreds of millions of individual vertebrates would have been saved from being killed and destroyed. That said, that seems fabulous and I could dine out on that for a few years. We had a change of government about five or six years later and within weeks that legislation was reversed and within months land clearing had returned to those extremely high levels, which again were literally a lose-lose outcome. Bad for agriculture, soil loss, water uh, water quality problems, bad for um, biodiversity, bad, terrible for CO2 emissions. Uh, and everybody was powerless to do anything about it.
0: What lessons did you learn from those two things other than oh, don't mess with yes. iconic furry animals? Right? And I should <laughs> mention I should I should mention that uh, I've read that the wildfires. Cut them down from about fifty thousand to five to ten thousand in population, Mm. which tragic for the koalas, but seems like a manageable, from what I've read, a manageable size
1: uh, population. Sustainable, exactly. That Kangaroo Island koala population, which again I'll say is an introduced population, it's not native to that island. The fire has, has has solved the problem temporarily, and if they can get it on top of it now with sterilisation and translocation, they can contain them because, as you know, exponential growth is a challenging thing and you can deal with it when there's a few hundred or low thousands. When you're dealing with, we've seen through COVID, exponential growth, once it gets away from you, it's hard to, hard to contain by hands-on management. So, in, in fact, we do think a lot of koalas were controlled by either fire or Indigenous people, um, and that's why... Um, they probably weren't on many islands um, around Australia because they used to not be controlled by foreign Indigenous people on islands and then they just basically destroyed all their habitat and time. There are pictures of koalas being put on islands and killing every tree and then starving. Anyway, that's an interesting sort of ecological situation. In terms of the land clearing stuff, which is in many senses far more important, uh, not not a senior face, but far more important, I think what I realised, and, I, and it took me a long, long time to realise that you, you can't win in conservation until you have bipartisan support. Mm. And that is a major problem for the green movement in general because often in many countries the green movement will back the left wing. Uh, you know, it's true in your country, it's true across most of Europe and Australia. They'll back the left wing because they think they're going to get more out of it. But when the right wing gets in, they get punished. And and some of the punishment is is from the right wing it can be just be bloody minded retribution they don't like being campaigned against so in some senses like that's why I like working for the Nature Conservancy because they were completely bipartisan they were neither left nor right and some green groups are starting to take that path and I would say if I want to have long term success on issues of land management in Australia I should really be going to the right wing party first. Uh, and getting them to buy into it. Because if they buy into it, it certainly sticks and it sticks forever. And you just have to fight and win that argument. It's not a, that hard argument because often they're supported by the rural community and the rural community also fully understand that um, poor land management costs their money.
0: Do you ever feel conflicted about advocacy in science? A lot of scientists do. Oh. And then mm. a lot of scientists try to be advocates and... Mm. they seem to abandon their Mm. scientific identity. So how do you approach, do you feel like that's a line you're walking? How do you approach being an effective advocate without losing scientific credibility?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting, I've never actually at all worried about that in in any possible sense of the word. I suppose regardless of where I am and who I'm advising, I've been on a lot of government committees, I have written those consensus letters uh, and been a vocal advocate in my current job actually. I have to be somewhat uh, uh, more reticent about what I say publicly, even what I tweet, because I'm I'm a state government public servant. But as an academic, I felt quite comfortable. As long as I was talking about something I knew about, if I was talking about threatened species, if I was talking about wildlife management, I felt as though I should talk about it. And I could advocate on those issues, and I advocated from the basis of just the facts and the consequences of the actions and inactions that we were not or we were taking. Never had a problem. Very early on in my career, when I was doing major advocacy around forests in southern Australia, and that was the... That was the big issue of the 90s in this country. I think it was more the 80s and 90s in the Western US, spotted owl type stuff. We had our own spotted owl, which was lead beater's possum and controversies throughout many species in that space. I did get several uh, older, more conservative scientists telling me to pull my head in and shut up and don't talk about things unless you're the one expert. You know, I was making very general statements like, if you destroy quality habitat for species, extinction probabilities will go up, things like that, which I just thought were mathematically uh, just fact. Indisputable. And, and they mathematical. Right. They're indisputable facts. But, you know, it's in the media, media, misreport what you say, and they just sort of said, well, you're only 27 here, you're too young to be speaking out in these things, basically, and you're, you're going to destroy your career. Well, A, like more than B, it did nothing to my career at all. In fact, a lot of that advocacy work led me to get into a position where governments particularly the federal government of the day asked me for a lot of advice so their view was this person cares they know some stuff what they've said it seems moderately reasonable let's bring them into the tent which also is a double-edged sword of course bringing people into the tent because once you're in the tent sharing committees on biodiversity and helping them draft legislation uh, you are also starting to get more constrained um, but that bottom line, no, I've never never had a problem. And I think the world has changed in the last 30 years. I look at the young people I talk to and they don't seem to have any qualms about uh, saying what they feel as long as, again, I just say, make sure you've got an evidence base for everything you do.
0: I don't know if you're familiar with Roger Pilkey, Jr., who's an academic in, at uh, Colorado University in Boulder, but he's written about the roles of scientists in policy and he's mm. – Postulated four roles. Basically, Hmm. it's the pure scientist, which sort of doesn't exist. Uh, There's a science arbiter who uh, is providing empirical answers to questions decision makers have using the tools of science. There's the issue advocate. And then there's what he calls the honest broker of policy Hmm. alternatives. And is the point of the categorizations is that where you get into trouble, according to Pilkey, is when you're not clear about what your role is. Well, when you're uh, you're a stealth issue advocate, for example, you're sort of hiding your advocacy yes. behind a facade of science. So, do you find that to be true? And and how do you make clear to if so, how do you make clear to your interlocutor yeah. this is the role I'm playing right now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've played all four roles at different points in time, even down to the pure scientist early in my career. And in my current role, it's definitely I firmly an honest broker. So I will get uh, be asked for advice on how to deal with sharks in Queensland. You know. so, and and there will be investigations into those processes and my personal opinions shouldn't come to the fore. I should just lay out the facts. Because of my background is in decision analysis, I'm very comfortable with that, sort of taking a systematic, Mm -hmm. something like a multi-criteria decision analysis approach where you lay out the options, you lay out the consequences of the options and you present that to the decision makers. So in general, I'm comfortable about that. I think when I'm advocating for something like uh, issues that involve biodiversity or bird conservation, I'm on the board of um, BirdLife Australia, I'm very clear that I love birds and I like seeing them and in and, and sense that's a value to me, that's a private value to me and I don't want to lose it and I also am very clear that other people might not hold that value system and I, I suppose I do put an argument that uh, as time progresses more and more people will care about nature and we will regret some of the actions we've taken in the past but that is certainly an opinion there's no, I can't prove that's going to be true I suppose I'm pretty transparent about my my, my value system all the time. It, it, and even where I am being an honest broker, people know where I stand on issues. They also know, for example, I'm not an animal liberationist. I care about animal welfare, but I would say animal welfare is, is way below my concerns about climate change and extinction. So the, my value system is moderately, is reasonably transparent, I suppose. Not that I don't value an, animal welfare, and I know that some people put animal we- welfare above ecosystem services and ecosystem persistence and extinction.
0: So a lot of conservationists, traditionally conservationists, are have been romantic about wilderness and that implies, or some people are explicit about it, that it's beyond calculation, it's beyond value. Mm. You bring a decision science perspective and expertise mm. to conservation planning and decision-making and when we were emailing uh back and forth before the conversation you told me you get a lot of questions on species triage you also get a lot of questions about bringing math and economics into conservation decision making yeah. and outcomes which and i see the two linked if we think about the koalas those two things are yeah. linked right so yeah. how 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 do you talk about math? How do you talk about economics that gets people who normally think about nature in terms of love or affection to open up to the quantification of nature?
1: Yeah, and I think there's two parts to that question. Uh, Certainly, when we talk about costs and benefits, it's very quick for some people to think that I'm going to put a dollar value benefit on wilderness, Or the existence of a species. And I don't like doing that. I think that valuation mechanism that some economists are are, are fond of is is flawed, pretty much. It's quite weak. At best, they can come up with a lower bound on the value of nature. And that's why I'm not a super big fan of ecosystem services. What I am a fan of is I those, If we have a set of resources, how do we deploy them most cost effectively? And therefore, the benefit function doesn't have to be put into money. It's benefit divided by cost. And the benefit does have to, however, be quantified. So it's numbers of species saved, the extent and quality of habitat. They're quantifiable things. We can put numbers on them. And then we try to use our resources to deliver the biggest number of species or the biggest amount of quality habitat we can within the resources of course that cost effectiveness approach that's easy um, and that's how a lot of our work has played out the question then is who decided the budget i mean what how much money do you how many resources do you have for national parks how much money do you spend on threatened species we already know that in countries like australia that's about one-tenth of what we need to deliver the outcomes we need to deliver and i would say that's not probably Something I can say much about. We just point out to the government of Australia repeatedly, you are spending about a tenth of what you need to on nature to stabilise the extinction crisis. And we've done those analyses multiple times. we That's all we can tell you. And it's up now to the Australian people and the political process to balance expenditure on nature and conservation against expenditure on defence, on health, on all those other things transport that the people value and to be honest that's where this gets back to the first question is how do we get that 10 or 20 percent of people who think nature is the most important thing up to 30 or 40 percent where that expenditure would start to follow I unfortunately i don't see a lot of that yet happening i don't see the the continually increasing interest in climate change, nature, the environment, species extinction. I don't see yet that being translated into budget allocations, which is puzzling because it is a a big sector. Uh, The green vote in Australia is often around 10%, and a lot of the green vote in Europe is around 10 or 15%. So so why is that not? Why is our expenditure on environment so small? I don't fully understand that.
0: You wrote a paper, you were an author on a paper uh, that came out, I think recently in Nature Communications about flagship species. Mm. So, for me, this paper sort of crystallizes this, let's be more rational point of mm. view, and then is trying to balance it with the affection people have already for iconic species. So, you were listing what's a flagship species? It's in the description I read hundreds of mammals, birds, and reptiles yeah. that are themselves charismatic. Uh, There's the secretary bird, the Gila monster, which is familiar to us in the United States, Uh, the Andean bird. So they're charismatic, but they're often overlooked. If we conserved them, we'd get a lot more bang for our buck than we would conserving some of the other charismatic species that we care about. Maybe wolves or lions or pandas. That's an exercise in ROI rationality, yeah. and then trying to communicate yeah. that to people and say, you know, designate these species. It felt to me yeah. like it leaves out the affection that people have for species. Do you do you think, right. do you have evidence that people could transfer affection to these right. other species uh, to build some constituency for them?
1: I think we have. And yeah, you're right. There are some species whose needs are so specific that if you meet them, you don't do anything for anything else. So they're not not good umbrella or flagship species, and there's other species if you conserve them. Many other species come along, and that was what the paper was about. Can you transfer affections? Yes, I think you can. We actually have some other interesting work with a Polish Polish colleague of mine, and she's looked at memes and around she was looking at pollen and obsession with the proboscis monkeys. So Mm. there was a meme around a cartoony-type character that was a proboscis monkey, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in Poland suddenly was transferring this this meme, uh, and everybody had became obsessed with proboscis monkeys, uh, which is not typically an icon or flagship. It is a somewhat vulnerable species. It's, it would be a great flagship. It was just a matter of the packaging of the species and the cute story around it. So, And it's an ugly species, it's an intriguing species, it's not your panda, koala type thing. So I think you can create those loves with with good science communication and it, it doesn't just have to be the immediate visual image, it can be the intriguing story. I think the blobfish is another one that people love now. It was just, just looked like one of the ugliest animals in the world. So it, it, it's intriguing. Life history is extreme, weird sexual behaviour. All those things um, can gather a following remarkably quickly, particularly in this world of Twitter and Facebook.
0: Did you have you gotten any interest from either NGOs or governments about uh, taking up some of these animals and putting some marketing weight behind them? It,
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of that, that work was done for an NGO called Wild Ark, Wildlife Conservation Society, has looked at it and, and thought about how they could use it. I haven't gone out of my way to spruik it as an event. I mean, it's it's it was work we did before I started working with the Nature Conservancy, but released afterwards. It's not a typical Nature Conservancy thing to build things around individual animals, but it's a bit more. Some of the other NGOs like mm. WWF could pick it up. I mean that. You know, that I would say is, if if it's the pick on Hugh's multiple failings of life, is having co-authored <laughs> 651 of these stupid scientific papers, you know, I think relatively to a lot of scientists, a lot of them had a huge impact. I mean, our spatial planning work has built the reserve systems of the planet and the software we've developed. But then too often we just go on to the next paper and we don't fully uh, realise the full benefits of some of the science we do. And this is a criticism of myself uh, and, and of many of my colleagues. We just don't spend the time explaining and translating the science we do in all the ways it has to be done but to to actually allow it to have good impact. And a number of times governments and NGOs come to me and say, Hugh, why hasn't somebody done that? And I say, well, they have, you know. X did that 17 years ago, Art Group did that 12 years ago, and they can't find it, <laughs> and we didn't explain it, and we didn't package it, and we didn't make it understandable to anybody. So, the kind of work you do, and, and the kind of work that we really need more translators and knowledge brokers in conservation.
0: Well, you said it, I read in an interview a couple of years back, you said science the way it normally plays out is read in three years, seen as important in 10 years, and then seen as useful after 20, which felt a little stretched to me, but you were making the point. And then you said, but good yeah. communications accelerates that time frame." Why is it so hard for science to absorb this lesson that communications yeah. uh, catalyzes impact? Yeah. Is it because the incentives are, are the incentive structure is still yes. uh, screwed up? Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, exactly. Discentive structure doesn't incentivise. Most of this is still coming out of universities from a conservation sector, and the incentive structure is just to keep writing more papers in bigger and bigger journals, and the impact side and the communication side doesn't work. So you're well aware that um, scientists, in some senses, although in universities, although the general public think we sit in this ivory tower protected from the realities of the world, they are evaluated quantitatively in a ruthless fashion. So every single person at the University of Queensland or any university, their boss knows their papers, their citations, their PhD completions, their grant incomes, and they're all numbers and they can all be ranked. And so, you know, who else, who else is subject to that amount of quantification of performance other than maybe athletes? And they're the things they will then pursue, those four right. things. The things that we're talking about, which is did you change the way the world works, we haven't worked out how to turn that into a number. We have stories. And we, we, many countries, the United Kingdom and Australia, have repeatedly tried to work out the impact of science and even try and quantify it. But we still don't have a citation number, an H index. You know, the dollars you bring into the university is a very clear number. But we don't have a number for impact. We have stories. It, it works a bit. People, you know, many of the most highly regarded scientists in universities have solid track records but they're well known for having impact but then that also means that they have to have people around them to sell and spruit those stories and make sure everybody knows those stories exist and that's also not in an academics Um, people you know Australia's a country of tall poppy syndromes people get cut down if they run around telling everybody what they've achieved so there's not a lot of incentive to do that either you know you're just big noting yourself if you run around telling everybody what you've done so it would be nice if we could eventually get some idea uh, of how to quantify and disseminate intact so it was part of the incentive system structure you're talking about uh, that would actually drive scientists to disseminate their information much more quickly
0: Okay, and you've also explained, uh, for me at least, where the Tall Poppy Award comes from. That's, I think, given out annually, right, to young scientists, That's right. right?
1: Exactly. You don't want yeah, to be cut so.
0: down. You want to keep those
1: poppies growing tall. Uh, well, yeah, and so Australia has a history of being anti-tall poppies, and so we we are very different culturally from the United States. Is is that anybody who appears to be putting themselves above about others is really victimized and picked on? It's an odd thing uh, it's partly British uh, and so that's why we you know we've got we've got to reverse that and, and it's not as a matter of being arrogant and obnoxious about your achievements but we shouldn't be just continually hiding them and assuming that we discovered long after we're dead.
0: So now as the chief scientist of Queensland, you've got a number of responsibilities, actually three key responsibilities. Uh, you're gonna you are leading science strategy across the government. but then the other two are about engagement of the queensland community in science-based activities and then promoting queensland science and i read somewhere that uh, a survey was done recently and four and five people in queensland couldn't name a queensland scientist or a scientific discovery and then it was like 40 percent was given a list of those people and things and couldn't couldn't recognize them so how are you going to first of all why is that important because if, if yeah. we, if in America, if we talked about that on the state level, like I was born in Wisconsin, let's name some Wisconsin sign, that, that would not be relevant to growing up in Wisconsin. But it seems like it's a point of pride in Queensland. And then secondly, how are you trying to break through to build this yeah. kind of engagement?
1: It's tough. And I wish I had a really clever answer to that. But I mean, why is it important? Again, Australia has had a little bit of a, an anti-intellectual sort of feel about it over the last, you know, since its inception, I suppose, uh, as a white invaded country, science isn't the kind of thing that people get excited about. People get excited generally about sport (laughs) and various recreation activities. Uh, scientists are not venerated nearly as much as they are in the United States or the United Kingdom, for example. So a lot of it is just to try and raise the profile of science and get kids excited about it. That's the view that if they see role models, then they will pursue more scientific subjects. Uh, and maths is another another important area in that space. How do we do it is really tricky. Uh, so it's nice that my office, well before I joined, was gathering this information and asking these questions and suddenly making people realise that in fact, you know, nobody really knows a scientist. I think Ian Fraser, who created Gardasil, which is a a global product, he is pretty well the only well-known scientist in the state, but he's produced a product that's made hundreds of millions of dollars and has protected millions and millions of people against cervical cancer. so that's an enormous outcome and it's a reasonably simple story. How do we get more of those stories that people are just talking about over the dinner table that they're seeing on the news, these exciting discoveries of science that have a real impact and a beneficial impact to people? We're sort of pushing through the citizen science route at the moment, which I think is one option. It's not the only option. So we hand out a lot of grants to citizen science groups to try and get people engaged with counting butterflies or birds or measuring water quality, those sorts of activities, hands-on activities to teach people about how science, citizen science particularly, can be used to help broader management and policy questions. So engagement like that. Queensland's an interesting state. Australia's interesting in that most states, there's a capital city and almost everybody lives there. So from where I come from, Adelaide is a million people and the next biggest city is 60,000, mm-hmm. a million to 60,000. It's a huge gap. Whereas the US, there's a lot of middle-sized cities. Queensland is the only state where most people don't live in the capital city. So we have a big state, but we have substantial cities like Townsville. And so one of my other tasks is actually also to try and make sure that we equitably um, give science opportunities across the entire state. And and to me that's exciting because I think with covid there's this notion that we will decentralise a lot of our industry, a lot of our manufacturing, a lot of our science. We have strong regional universities. So I, I, I'm excited about the prospect of promoting science in rural communities and regional communities throughout the state. So it's a much more balanced thing. We, we have this terrible problem is that people think all the science and all the white-collar jobs sit in the capital city and that's where the big university is, University of Queensland, Sydney University, Melbourne University, and that's where you have to go to be an intellectual. We really need to now, as people work more, in a more distributed fashion, as we can be more dispersed and communicate over Zoom and Skype, that we can actually have centres of scientific excellence scattered all across the state, which would be an exciting thing.
0: How do you approach conversations with people who... Don't believe or trust scientific evidence that you're promoting to inform a decision.
1: Well, that's challenging, and you know it's interesting because we do live in whether it's in the university or the nature conservancy, I live in a lived in a cosseted world where 99% of people believe everything you believe in, and you don't have to convince anybody of anything. And then occasionally, of course, they're the people you're working with, and they're all over the planet. Then you just talk to your neighbour, and they don't. Believe. They're highly educated, intelligent people. They live 20 metres from you and they, and we're all friends. My wife has a book club that runs across the street. It's a great commute, local community, but a third of them uh, are very sceptical about issues of climate change. I suppose I, I generally uh, don't go in with a very conflictual or, or an, uh, attacking approach. I just ask them whether they believe the weather reports uh, go to the Bureau of Meteorology website and look at the tre- sea level rise issues, look at the number of storms that have happened in Queensland, look at the temperature records. So I just I appeal to the very basic raw data uh, and then on extinction rates, of course, the data is appalling. Australia's basically losing one mammal and one bird per decade over 200 years. And then I say, well, you know that you realise that, If that went on in a linear fashion, which is not going to happen, then we're we're basically going to make everything extinct in 2,000 years. There will be nothing left. That's not going to happen. But these rates are unsustainable. So that's what I say. I would have to say I don't get a lot of victories out of those discussions. I don't think I necessarily change people's minds. In many ways where I have more joy is running local bird walks. So I'm the patron of the local a park and another friends group, and I just run bird walks with them and I just I, I think feel so I get more impact in converting individual people by just talking about the joy of nature and listening to birds and pointing out their, this how beautiful they are and talking about the mistletoe and how the mistletoe bird disperses the mistletoe. That, that to me is where I get some victories in terms of converting people to the green side, not on a discussion about climate change.
0: Are you ever tempted to get into arguments with people?
1: No, because I don't think it works. I think uh, it's a bit like um, uh, you know, a Catholic trying to convert a Jew. I mean, is that going to work? <laughs> <laughs> or I'm a, as, when I was you know, 18, I was a rabid atheist. I'm still a rabid atheist, and I did try and convert people, and that was, it was entertaining and caused lots of drunken arguments, but, of course, it was entirely useless.
0: I'll try the other the other side. You know, science communication today stresses dialogue. We used to stress clarity a mm. lot, and then we found out that clarity alone doesn't really work. You actually have to have a conversation with mm. people and listen to people. Mm. How far do you let dialogue go in these instances where people are clearly not interested in or have conspiratorial thinking about climate change or yeah. biodiversity, et cetera?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, this conspiratorial thinking. I mean, when people say to me they just don't believe in the Bureau of Meteorology's actual data from the machines, um, that's challenging, it's confronting, because if that's true, then one underpins almost all the factual knowledge on which we do. Do they believe the stock market index? Do they believe the Dow Jones? Do they believe the interest rate prices? They have to suffer the consequences of those things. I mean, I think I. I'm happy to listen to those views and I suppose I'm old and I'm much calmer and I've heard lots of wacky things in my life. I do happily engage in the dialogue for a long time with those people who don't believe. I probably start to come back to just um, their personal experiences and, and how they feel about what they're seeing in the natural world in terms of the diversity they see around them, the changes they see around them, and um, I also point out some good things. So I would say in the city, most Australian cities, the diversity of birds in people's backgrounds has gone up. So the suburb I lived in, live in now was flat for agriculture. It was completely denuded. It was beautiful and rainforest with huge diversity, was and now people are planting trees and those trees are getting old and we're getting birds returning. So, so I'm also happy to point out I think like people like to hear some good stories and they like to hear some stories about how habitat restoration does work. The rewilding thing I think is actually capturing the imagination of so many people around the world. People are getting very excited about it here in Australia. I know they're excited about it, particularly in Europe. And so I think you have to sell them something that they can do So, uh, and get them excited about a practical activity because just complaining about the state of government funding and um, burning of coal, they can't do anything about it. So it's almost sometimes I wonder what's the point of having a discussion. Let's talk about what they can do at a local level. And and then it's not unlike my transition from a 12-year-old bird watcher to writing a letter to the newspaper. It took me 10 years to become a greenie. Having fallen in love with nature, so uh, and I, it was very much personal activities of growing trees and watching birds. So I think that's the way, that's the pathway to success. It's slow, and it's not like it's not St. Paul having having an epiphany on the roads of Damascus. It's not that, and I think to expect that is impossible. But it's it's a it's a it's a ten year process.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you're white and a male, stating the obvious, and that is what kind of what conservation has looked like since it began. Mm. And conservation stories have usually been about the guy usually white going out and encountering strange wildlife and coming back and living mm. to tell about it. It's not exactly inclusive. It makes for some decent TV. And then science obviously has its own diversity issues. Yeah. So, you know, we can attack diversity in science, but how do we how do we attack this this diversity problem in how conservation looks and who represents conservation while also retaining the expertise that we have in people like you. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we are making progress and there are conscious efforts. The nature conservancy has a huge uh, diversity program that I think is, is starting to bear results. Uh, the male thing, I think, um, We've made major progress there. The majority of my PhDs and postdocs were female and those people are progressing through the ranks and I think they're progressing at reasonable pace. I think there's more options in terms of part-time work and... and, and, um, more understanding of what we call relative to opportunity awards. So there's a lot of female only awards. There, when you get grants in Australia from the research councils, you have to state how many real years you have had of research time and you can take away caring of various kinds of child rearing and so forth. The the white thing I think is a much bigger problem and particularly even though well I just gave a talk to about 40 students last night about careers in the NGO sector from the University of Queensland and their mixture of masters and PhD students. And majority would have been women. And 10 years ago, I would have said they would have been 95% Caucasian. Now actually they're not. They're about um, only about 50 to 60% Caucasian, as far as I can judge. So I think we are getting diversity. We don't have a lot of role models at the top end. Uh, showing ethnic diversity, we particularly Australia has a big Asian population, and we are particularly short of I mean uh, uh, of Asian people being uh, very visible in the conservation world. And in that sense, I think we're, progress is happening. I mean, the International Conservation Biology Conference was held in Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur. We are trying to internationalise activities, do more things in Africa and, and Asia. Latin America, I think, has actually always been very strong in conservation, and there are many leaders and role models from Latin American countries. Bottom line, it's slow. It's not as fast as anybody would like, but as long as the progress is positive, that's good. And I think we just need to put in more incentives to make that progress. So
0: we're almost at time. I wanted to ask you about maps. So you have had a rich career in conservation. Highly decorated. Mm. You're associated, though, in a lot of conservationist minds, first and foremost, with the invention of Marksan, which is a mapping software that has been used in over 150 countries. And I read somewhere that it's built half the protected area systems on the planet. What makes a map a Mm. good vehicle for communication, science, communication or just communication? What are the principles? What makes a map special, where it opens up a conversation or it opens up someone's mind that another way of communicating doesn't?
1: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you tell me, because it does, it, you're right though. People love maps. I love maps. I can't tell you how much I love maps. If 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 I'm sitting, if I was sitting in a bar and there was tele televisions on, television on, and there were maps, I'd be looking at the map. I wouldn't be looking at the television. I can't actually sit in rooms with maps and have conversations with people because I just want to walk up to the map and look at it. And I want. So yeah, they're great. Uh, they're also evil, actually. I mean, you know, oh, you can lie with maps. You can lie with maps as much as anything. So, uh, and I I've talked a lot about how the people mapping things and then using them to, uh, and they're heavily misinterpreted you know maps of species richness used to be 40 years ago here's a map of species richness and people say oh that's where we should do conservation no that's not where you should do conservation that's part of the information about where you should do conservation so what i don't like is maps that don't maps that 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 do deliberately try and confuse people and push them in a direction without explaining all the errors in the maps where the data comes from so that's one of the things that we should be working on more is making sure that a math is no better than any other set of data. It's no better than any story. It, it's filled with uncertainty and we should be clear about it, uncertainty. It's filled with data, some of which is a fraction of which is going to be wrong. And you should look at it, but you don't necessarily think it's the answer because you don't even know what the question is. So I, I have some misgivings about maps. Um, But you're right, I mean, I think the the most spectacular example I have seen about the use of maps is um, uh, the Nature Conservancy often builds three-dimensional models of local communities in New Guinea and um, Solomon Islands, and they get the community to build their three-dimensional map, and then they point out what's important to them where, where they're fish where particular species are and that that is such an engaging process and i've actually seen that happen here more in queensland now they take literally they make a map the size of half of a basketball court and they bring the whole community in and people start saying what they care about farmers miners local community members school teachers so yeah i think the the use of maps where you build a map with the community is even more powerful and and potentially one of the ways we can do one of the things I really care about, which is better regional planning. Why build towns where there's high value agricultural land? Why put solar farms on some of the best forests? We're doing all those things now. We're making really bad decisions on land allocation, because people don't realize that they're taking away future options. And regardless of who you talk to, the economist may start convincing you that many resources are unlimited. The one thing I do know is the surface area of the planet is finite. So planning is far more important than the general public realize, because what we do with every square meter on the earth is, is, is ridiculously important. Last
0: question. In 2009, you proposed devoting a proportionate fraction of gambling revenues to saving an endangered species, to be selected by a random drawing shown on television before the Melbourne Cup. Mm -hmm. You were also in a great debate two years ago as part of Australia's National Science Week, and the debate topic was the greatest discovery ever made. I'd like to know what this discovery was, but the question is, how do we get more scientists to be playful like this? Seems to me yeah. like you really enjoy having fun yeah. and you even though you are uh, one of the world's most recognized conservation scientists you don't take yourself so seriously that you won't appear oh. in a great debate or you won't make a proposal like yeah. that to solve a problem.
1: Yeah, and it does have to be fun. And I suppose I do give a lot of public talks. I love panels where you can bounce off a variety of interesting people and some of the panel discussions we've had here and around the world on these topics. You know, people spark off each other and and interesting stuff happens. And to be honest, I mean, sorry, I shouldn't really say this, but sometimes I do love hanging out with conservationists, but sometimes they can be miserable and dull. They can really be miserable and dull. And, you know, very much over-anxious about failure and, and anxious about whether they're getting anywhere. So it does have to be fun. And maybe that is part of our communication problem. Uh, you know, it shouldn't just be, oh, I need to be worthy and count some birds and plant some trees and fix up the water quality and and i'd have to say most of these conservation groups that i'm a part of don't spend enough time enjoying themselves and maybe that is part of the secret for the new conservation and that's why i think some of the rewilding stuff is it's not quite so much it's a vision of something that hasn't happened that's going to be more exciting
0: you can find show notes for my chat with you a transcript, and more at our website, com slash podcast. If you like the episode, please rate or review us and tell a friend. And if you have a suggestion for a future guest or topics, email me at bob at com. Resonate Recordings produces Science Plus Story. Mikhail Porro composed the theme music. I'm Bob Lalish. Thanks for listening.